in the vast expanse of a timeless place, when goodness ruled the outer space, ominously began a spirit war between the one named Lucifer and the morning star, the Son of God. Enveloped by a trillion planets, clean as lightning and hard as granite, a cosmic coliseum would host the end of the war between the Lord of sin and death and the omnipotent creator of man's first breath to decide who forever would be the champion. The audience for the fight of the ages was assembled and in place. The angels came in splendor from a star. The demons arrived, offensive and vile, cursing and blaspheming God. A chill swept through the mammoth crowd as arrogantly prancing, hands held high, Satan ascended from the abyss. Then, with a surge of light beyond intense, illuminating the universe, in resplendent glory appeared the Son of God. Next, a persona extraordinaire appeared in center ring. God the Father will oversee the duel. Opening the book of life, each grandstand hushed in awe as majestically he said, now here's the rules. He'll be wounded for their transgressions, bruised for their iniquities. The father looked at his only son and said, you know the rules. Your blood will cleanse their sins and calm their fears. Then he pointed his finger at Satan and said, and I know you know the rules. You've been twisting them to deceive my people for years. The bell rang, the crowd cheered, the fight was on. The devil leaped in fury, he threw his jabs of hate and pride, but the hand that knew no sin blocked everyone. Yet the fatal blow he saved for the final round. Prophetically, Christ's hand came down. The blow of death felled Jesus to the ground. The devils roared in victory. The saints stood shocked as wounds appeared upon his hands and feet, and they waited for the ten count of defeat. God the Father turned his head, his tears announcing Christ was dead. The ten count would proclaim the battle's end. But Satan trembled through his sweat in unexpected horror when God started the count by saying ten Hey, wait a minute, God. Nine, eight, seven. Stop. You're counting wrong. Six, five. His eyes are moving. Four, three. His fingers are twitching. Two, one. He's alive. He's alive forevermore. He is risen. He is Lord. Proclaim the news in every tongue through endless ages and beyond. Let it be voiced from mountains loud and strong. Captivity has been set free. Salvation bought for you and me. Satan is defeated. And Jesus is the champion. No poem or song or narrative could fully or accurately describe the events we celebrate this weekend. Once a year, we remember the day on which all human history turns. About 6,000 years ago, a rebellion waged that found its way to our planet. The enemy of God and good usurped dominion of our earth. The human race was doomed. Only one being in the entire universe could redeem our captive race, and he would not stop until he took back the planet and the people he made and who he loved. When the time was full, 
He came to earth to confront the face of evil and fight the battle that would win that war. That final battle began where the earth had been lost, in a garden. The Gospels described what happened to Jesus, what his experience was in the Garden of Gethsemane this way. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. There he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, this hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Again, a second time he went away and prayed saying, Oh my Father, if this cup cannot pass from me, unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them sleep asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away again and prayed a third time, saying the same words. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Death, agony, deeply distressed. So much stress that, that capillaries were constricted and blood mixed with sweat. For God himself, the agony began in this garden. In fact, his death began in the garden before he ever went to the cross. And what should make the hairs stand up on the back of your neck? What should make you stop breathing for a few seconds is to realize that he almost didn't do it. Have you ever thought about that? He begged, Lord, Take this cup away from me. God himself came to this point, to this moment, where he would fight the final battle, where he would go through everything that sin had brought to humanity, to the universe. He would take it. He would experience it. And that cup trembled in his hand. He shook and he felt like he couldn't, God himself felt like he couldn't do it. He almost didn't do it. The battle was that intense. What was asked of him was that severe. But there in the garden, it wasn't over. Even when the angel came and strengthened him, it wasn't over. It was just beginning. In the garden, he, he got his resolve back. And he knew that he would walk all the way through what he had to do. He knew he would not stop. He would stop at nothing. But it started in the garden. The Bible describes what happened next 
<clears throat> with a phrase that has captured my attention. In Philippians, Paul, describing this, says, Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, counted it not a prize to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and was found in his appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. I want to sit and chew on that phrase for a while with you this morning. Even the death of the cross. Does the cross reveal something even more than maybe we have thought about? What was this cross? This cross, I don't think the Romans invented it, but they sure used it. Um, maybe they perfected it. I don't know. It was a, an agonizing way to die. The whole point of it was to extend uh, suffering as long as you could before death finally came. It was humiliating. You were stripped. You were exposed. You were up in front of everyone. All of your agony was visible to everyone. It was saved for the worst of the worst. Roman citizens could not be crucified by law. It was slaves. It was criminals. It was non-Romans. It was um, uh, people who in, in, insurrected, is that a word, who tried to overthrow the, the Roman government. It was for the lowest of the low. If you were on a cross, it was humiliation times two. Um, and the Bible also talked about the curse, that one who hangs on a tree is cursed. And when Jesus hung on this tree, beyond that fact that he was hanging on a tree and there was a curse mentioned about that, if you think back to Genesis, when the curse of sin first came to our human race, what did it involve? When God finally came and talked to them about what they had done, what they experienced the moment sin uh, affected their hearts and they became sinners. And as God told them what would happen in the future because of sin, what was it? They recognized they were naked. She was going to have pain in childbirth. There would be thorns growing out of the ground and they would die because of what happened. Nakedness, pain, thorns, death. What did Jesus take on the cross? There he was, nakedness, pain, thorns, death. He took the curse. He took everything about what sin had brought to our humanity. Every physical pain that we go through, every emotional pain that we go through, every relational pain that we go through. He not only took our sins on him, he bore our griefs and our sorrows. He took the whole curse of sin and he walked through it himself to come through victorious because we couldn't do that. We were stuck there. But I'd like to ask a question. We can't really fully comprehend what even the death of the cross meant for Jesus unless we ask ourselves this question. What did Jesus actually need to do to be our Savior? Well, we know because it had been symbolized for thousands of years before he ever came. In the temple... 
every day there was there were sacrifices and when someone sinned there was a plan a ritual for them to bring a sacrifice and it was all symbolic of Jesus coming and dying for us and what happened in the symbol was there was a lamb that was perfect a lamb without blemish without defect was brought there was a sin transfer the person put their hands on the lamb and symbolically transferred their sin to the lamb and then the lamb was died a humane death did you know that they were instructed how to my daughter was just studying the aztecs the aztecs also practiced a practiced a whole lot of sacrifice and it was as far from humane as you can get um but this lamb died a humane death and it was an act of substitution the the lamb died in place of the sinner but it was clear that this was all symbolic listen to what the writer of hebrews said every priest indeed stands day by day serving and offering often the same sacrifices which can never take away sins the sacrifices in the tabernacle the sacrifices in the temple they couldn't take away sins they were shadows they were symbols they were pointing to something that was coming that would but he jesus when he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever sat down at the right hand of god jesus was the one sacrifice that could take away sin so what did jesus have to do to actually be our savior. John describes him as in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The word God became flesh and dwelt among us, lived among us. First of all, Jesus needed to be divine. Could not be another human being, a good guy, could not be uh, an angel, a prophet, a righteous person because we all are not righteous so jesus needed to be god and he needed to become human second um hebrews describes him this way for such a high priest was fitting for us holy guiltless undefiled separated from sinners and made higher than the heavens who doesn't need like those high priests to offer up sacrifices daily first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people and he also says Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish the same language used to describe the lambs in the sacrifices he had to be without sin he had to be blameless jesus needed to live a sinless life as a human third thing that he needed in order to be our savior was this same thing that happened to the lamb isaiah in prophesying about the coming messiah describes him this way says the lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all he will bear our iniquities for he bore the sin of many and the writer of hebrews used the same language to describe jesus death so christ was offered once to bear the sins of many he who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree thirdly jesus needed to bear our sins in order to be our savior they had to be a substitution he had to take the sins of the world on himself and lastly therefore jesus also that he might sanctify the people through his own blood he had to die 
to him who loves us and washed us from our sins by his blood. It doesn't mean physically his blood could be rubbed on us and somehow that would wash us from sin. It means he had to die. So in order to be our savior, Jesus had to be our atoning sacrifice. Okay? Now I want you to get this Get this in your head because I am about to say something that might sound a little jarring to some of you. And I don't want you to throw me out till I'm done. To be clear, in order for Jesus to be our Savior, He needed to be divine. He needed to become human. He needed to live a sinless life as a human. He needed to be our sin bearer. He needed to be our substitute. He needed to bear our sins and die in our place, right? This is what Jesus needed to do in order to be our savior. Now here's what I want you to ponder. None of this had to happen on a cross. Let that sink in for a second. He had to bear our sins. He had to die. He had to go through the curse of sin and come through victorious on, a, on our behalf. But this did not have to happen on a cross. The Bible predicted that it would. God has foreknowledge and God knew how this was going to go down and how it was going to play out. And so we have prophecies in the Bible that tell us that he, his, he would be pierced and those sorts of things. But let's think about what was going on on the cross. This little section of Colossians gives us two things that happened on that cross that we really need to understand. First of all, Colossians explains that on the cross, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. That's the forgiveness part. That's him becoming our savior part, right? He took our condemnation. He took our debt that we could not pay. And he paid it for us and nailed it to the cross. But it goes on and says this, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. What powers and authorities did Jesus make a public spectacle of on the cross? What powers and authorities did he triumph over on the cross? Was it the Romans? Was it Caesar? Was it the, the soldiers that crucified him? Look at Hebrews Look what rulers and authorities the Bible talks about. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. John when, uh, talks, uh, lets us know that when Jesus was uh, telling his disciples that his death was coming, he described it this way. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The kind of death he was going to die. Not the fact that he would die, 
and be our sin bearer, the kind of death he was going to die would cause the prince of this world to be driven out. At the cross, Satan was unmasked. Beyond Jesus becoming our savior, which is everything, Satan showed his true colors. You have to realize that this cross, although it just happened in one location on earth, it had a universal audience. The angels were watching what happened. And this person, Lucifer, who had become Satan, had at one time been their friend, had at one time been a glorious, wonderful angel that lived with them in heaven. He, through deception, caused a third of them to turn away from God and believe that God was not loving, that God was not worth following, that God did not belong on the throne of the universe. After the cross, there was no more question about what had happened to Lucifer. After the cross, there was no more question about what his intentions were, what his heart had become. There was no more question about what his, whether his, there was any truth to his lies. The cross shows Satan at his worst. Satan was the one who inspired this bloody mess. Satan was the one who inspired people to, to torture God himself. The cross unmasked Satan. There is no more question where he's coming from or what he wants for you and for me. But the cross also showed God at his best. The cross showed what, how far God was willing to go, what abuses he was willing to take in order to save his children, in order to live forever with his loved ones who had walked away from him. You have to remember that both men and angels had been deceived. We don't think, maybe we don't spend time thinking about angels. I do. <laughs> if a third of them walked away from God and forever stayed with Lucifer, that's a lot of deception. Angels were deceived. We have been deceived. But once Satan was unmasked. There is no more question. All the things that seem like, oh, well, that, does, that seems okay. I don't know what would be wrong with that. If God has said that's sin, if God has said that's the way of destruction, it is. That's where Satan pushes us. If, if God has said this is the way of happiness, this is the way of joy, this is the way of righteousness, it is. He proved it on the cross. They were, they were both shown up with what Jesus was, or what, yeah, what Jesus was willing to endure on the cross and what Satan was willing to throw at Jesus on the cross. Proverbs says there is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. We could put angels in there too. There was a time where there was a way which seemed right to the angels, but the end but its end was the way of death. There was no way anyone could believe that Lucifer could become so evil unless they saw it for themselves. And Jesus was willing to take it in order for us to see what, what his intentions are. And because Jesus took all the curse of sin on the cross, all the abuse of Satan on the cross, everything that Satan had to throw at anybody, he threw at Jesus. And because Jesus took it, 
We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. He has been through it. He has felt it. He has, is sympathetic. He cares and understands like nobody else understands. But one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Confidence that we will be in the presence of someone who gets us. Confidence that we will be in the presence of someone who understands and sympathizes, who doesn't judge, who sympathizes. Confidence that we will be in the presence of someone who knows what it feels like and has overcome and is willing to walk us through it. I'd like to ask you to think about this question too. If it was this agonizing for Jesus, if he was sweating blood, if he was begging God, is there any other way? I don't know if I can do this. What was it that made the sacrifice worth it to Jesus? In the garden, he talked about a cup that he had to drink. Colorado is a dry place, and people get very active here and climb mountains and go on hikes. And if you had been, you know, really working out, and you were really dry and thirsty, and I offered you a cup of cold, fresh water, would you drink it? It wouldn't be hard to decide to take that cup and drink that cup. What if I took some salt? And what if I just started pouring like a quarter cup or a half a cup of salt into that cup of water? Stirred it up, mixed it up in there. And then I let you know that if you drink this cup, it will burn going down and then it will open everything up. You will feel so sick. You will be throwing up. You'll have the runs. You will be suffering. If you drink this cup, it's going to be miserable. I'll ask you that question. What would make it worth it to drink this cup? If I offered you a dollar, would that be enough? Would that make it worth it? If I offered you $5 or $500 or $26 million, would that make it worth it to drink this cup? Or what if I told you, if you will drink this cup, the war in Ukraine will end and no more people will die? Or what if I told you, if you will drink this cup, your mama, who you lost five years ago, will come back to life and you'll see her every day and talk to her every day. What if I told you, if you will drink this cup, every child who has cancer will be healed and no children will have any more cancer. Would that make it worth it to you? Then would you drink that cup? The Bible tells us what made it worth it to Jesus. When he struggled, when he struggled, in Hebrews it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. The joy set before him. Do you know what that was? That was you. That was you. The only joy that came through this was the fact that his children who were lost would be reconciled to him. That his children who would lost, he would have with him for eternity, would be his friends again. He wouldn't lose them. That was the joy. You, your face, the knowledge that you could know him 
and you could be with him forever. That's what gave him what he needed to get through the drops of blood and the agonizing that he went through on the cross. That's what gave him what it took to face the face of evil and take everything that it had to throw at him. But let's not leave Jesus there. The story doesn't end on the cross. If it did, on the cross, Jesus spoke the words. Hmm. Jesus spoke the words, it is finished. It is finished. But everything wasn't finished. If it had stopped there, we would still be hopeless. We would still be stuck. We needed a victor. We needed someone who could conquer what we could not conquer. And so the sacrifice was finished. The one sacrifice, once for all, no more lambs had to die. No more death, no, no more substitutionary death had to take place. That was finished. But as Jesus laid in the tomb, I can imagine Satan and all his one-third of the angels' demons held their breath. They had heard his prophecies. They had heard how he, would said, he said he would rise again on the third day. And they had to make sure that didn't happen if they were going to win this war. And so they inspired people to do some things to make sure Jesus stayed in that tomb. First, a huge, enormous, heavy stone was rolled in front of the tomb, so heavy that the women knew they couldn't move it and weren't sure how they were going to get to Jesus when they needed to. They made sure there was a Roman seal put on that tomb. That wasn't normal. You didn't seal when someone died. They were just buried. But they put a Roman seal on it. It was under pain of death that you broke that seal. And then they put a Roman guard in front of that tomb. Now, from what I read, this is what I found about Roman guards. Was This was a group of 16. 16 hardened Roman soldiers. I mean, these guys were killers, right? And they each were responsible for six square feet of ground. So they were spread out and they were responsible. They were required to stand as long as they were on duty. They could not sit. They could not lean on anything. They stood for their whole time. And if one of them fell asleep, the whole, all 16 would be killed. All 16 would be executed. So they kept each other awake no matter what. These were hardened, tough soldiers. These were Roman soldiers, but they were nothing for an angel. They were nothing for the Son of God. Because when the women came on that third day to put more spices on the body of Jesus, can you imagine all the angels vying to be the one that gets to be there to announce that Jesus has risen? I think everyone would have had their hands raised. And this one got to be the one. This angel said to them, do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. And then he spoke the seven words that changed the whole universe. The seven words that made all the difference. He has risen. He is not here. And that tomb never held the body of Jesus again. They had laid him there, but he was not there. Friends, the cross shows how far Satan will go to destroy and how far God will go to save. The cross equalizes everyone. Poor, rich, no matter what part of the world you're from, no matter what kind of education you have, no matter um, what uh, 
looks or success you have. Everyone is equal. Everyone is a sinner. Everyone needs a savior. The cross equalizes everyone. The cross shouts, dying, just wanting you to hear, you are worth it. You are worth it. We look to everything else for our worth. We look to other people and their reactions to us. We look to our clothes and how well we fit in. We look to our success and our education and our jobs and all these things we boast in is not what gives us our worth. They come and go. They go up and down. But the cross says, look at Jesus. You are worth it. You have value. And the cross explodes God is love. There is no more question. No more question. God is love. The empty tomb proves that God keeps his promises. The empty tomb says that God is a God of resurrections. If there's some dead place in your life, some place um, that you need resurrection, that you need new life, that you need second chance, God is the God of resurrections. Nothing is too hard for him. The empty tomb assures that God is the victor in our struggles. And the empty tomb exclaims, God is trustworthy. You don't have to listen to Satan's lies and deceptions anymore. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. He died even the death of the cross. And because of this, God has exalted him to the highest place and given him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is the champion, that Jesus Christ is Lord.